0: Hey friends, welcome to the first episode of 2022. Hope you've had a wonderful start to the new year, and our pray this year will bring with it an abundance of graces. Thanks always for tuning in and being my fellow companions on the Myth Pilgrim, and for just continually supporting this, this work, this ministry. Big virtual hug. Okay, you know, ever since I started the Myth Pilgrim back in July 2020, I've had King Arthur and the many quests for the Holy Grail in my mind as like quintessential you know, myth-pilgrim material. For the world of knights and chivalry and quests and holy grails really is the marriage between mythology and faith, between legend and history, all of which is very myth-pilgrim-esque. So here at the start of 2022, I'm particularly excited to be finally presenting the first of these Holy Grail episodes to you. First, what is the Holy Grail? Well, the etymology of the word Grail comes from Old French which means a cup or more likely a dish of some sort. Traditionally it is associated with the vessel that once held the body and blood of Jesus during the Last Supper, though this wasn't always the case from the beginning. Most of you may recall the biblical figure of Joseph of Arimathea, the rich Jewish man who generously offered to take the body of the crucified Jesus down and then laid him in one of his own empty tombs well tradition goes that joseph captured some of christ's blood from the cross in a grail and then this sacred relic went on on a number of adventures and somehow made its way to glastonbury england the place where the legends of king arthur's avalon were believed to be set during the middle ages the arthurian grail legends became sort of popularised with poets like Crescent de Troyes and Thomas Mallory, both of which have left behind memorable Grail legends, both of which we'll be exploring on the Myth Pilgrim. But despite the idea of the Holy Grail being like the Holy Grail of all Quest legends, I wager very little is actually known today about how these original stories went. Popular film depictions like Indiana Jones and Monty Python and Da Vinci Code haven't really helped the cause either. But despite all of these being rather entertaining and funny to watch, they sort of miss the point entirely, as you might see by the end of this episode. Further, the quest for the Holy Grail is such juicy story material that like every author and poet and bard has since spun their own version of the story, some of which are more profound than others, some with greater historicity and some are just pure fantasy. What is important is that even in a secular culture today, the Holy Grail continues to be a symbol, an icon of that which is of highest value, the greatest treasure of all. Hence, we still use expressions like, um, you know, that guitar is like the Holy Grail of guitarists, or to find the cure to cancer is like the Holy Grail of medicine. Over and above all other well known quest items like the Philosopher's Stone, the Fountain of Youth, and so on, the Holy Grail is always next level up. For the grail crosses the threshold of the priceless into the divine. The threshold of history into eternity. As a symbol, it is not just another quest item, but the quintessential one. The one that has both haunted and inspired the western mind since. Historically, we can gain a deeper appreciation of the Grail by firstly understanding the significance of relics for ancient people. So when we modern Catholics think of a relic, we tend to think of a bone or skin or some other part of a deceased saint, something that reminds us of their presence and maybe their continual kind of power to pray for us. But within ancient Celtic spirituality, a relic literally possesses the grace of the person the relic came from. To inherit a relic was to inherit something of the power that the individual had, a little like how Elisha, possessing Elijah's cloak in the Old Testament, enabled him to possess the same prophetic powers as his master. So you could say that for Celtic Christians, to have access to the Holy Grail was akin to having access to the very grace of God. Hence, you could say that the quest for the Grail wasn't just a quest, but the quest, the very meaning of existence. And I'm going to posit right up front that the Grail should also be the very meaning of our existence. Mm. Something about our ancient Celtic Christians' uh, emphasis on the physical, incarnational, childlike, wonder-inducing faith can offer us modern Catholics a lot to reflect upon, especially because we tend to reduce faith to something intellectual or even just purely spiritual, lacking in any concrete physical form. Okay, so yeah, as mentioned before, I plan to share with you at least two Grail legends on the Myth Pilgrim, both of which focus on King Arthur's legendary knights. One is called Sir Galahad, and the other one is Sir Parsifal. Today, we'll be looking at the Sir Galahad one. For those interested, I'm going to be basing this story off Sir Thomas Mallory's version of the tale in his 14th century, The Life of Arthur. When we first meet Galahad, he is an illegitimate young man, raised by his great aunt in a nunnery. He is a holy and humble young man, fair to look at and aside from his skill with lance and sword, would become best known for his chastity. This virtue of his is in significant contrast to his father, Sir Lancelot, who despite his own greatness and esteem amongst King Arthur's knights, secretly had had an affair with Guinevere, the Queen of Camelot over many years. But right from the outset, Galahad's purity of heart would destined him to be the worthy knight who would actually find the Holy Grail, or so went Merlin's prophecy. After one day besting his own father in a mock battle, Lancelot bestows knighthood upon his son then and there on the spot, and on Pentecost Sunday, Galahad arrives at Arthur's court. There, he innocently takes a seat at the round table called the Seat of Peril long prophesied to be only available to the one who was destined to find the grail. Anyone who tried to sit there unworthily would surely die. But when Galahad moves to sit there, the words, This is the seat of Galahad, the perfect knight, appears. All present are in awe. And then, all the knights receive a vision of the grail processed in by angels. Following this, all are miraculously fed, then and there from the grail. In this vision, The Grail is likened to a dish more than a cup, kind of like the silver pattern used during Mass to contain the Eucharist. Anyway after such a profound vision all the knights are inspired to go out on a quest to search for the actual coveted Grail. Galahad's adventure proves to be unique in that his purity afforded him divinely supernatural gifts like healing and casting out demons and so forth. He travels for many months with his knight companions Sir Parsifal and Sir Bors slaying baddies and rescuing damsels in distress. But significantly during this time, his father, Lancelot, comes within grasp of the Holy Grail himself. But when he reached out for it, he was held back from it by a blast of holy fire, and Lancelot became blinded for 24 days. One day, for each of the 24 years, he had been having an affair with Guinevere. Lancelot is told that unless he repented and ended his affair with the queen, he would never be found worthy a knight again in Arthur's court. But that is a story moving away from our story today. So towards the end of Galahad's journey, things become more and more mysterious. Galahad and his companions board upon a self-sailing ship to an island where they received the sword of King David from Sir Parsifal's sister, saying that he must take the sword to the house of the maimed king in Corbenic. This maimed king is King Pallas, the last descendant of Joseph of Arimathea, and the mysterious Corbenic Castle is the Grail Castle, the same one that features in the tale exclusively about Sir Parsifal. Inside Corbenic Castle, they are visited by a vision of Josiah, son of Joseph of Arimathea, and then our Lord Jesus himself presents the Grail to Galahad. Galahad is filled with such a state of rapturous consolation and joy that he prayed that he be taken up to heaven and to leave his mortal life. This wish is actually granted and as the story goes, Galahad never returns home to Camelot, rather one day, as he lay prostrate before the altar, he is miraculously lifted bodily into heaven, being only the third person aside from Jesus and Mary to have achieved such a divine favour. So that's the basic story of Galahad. I wonder whether it was what you were familiar with or what you were expecting. Because if you were expecting a great adventure story, some great you know story arc about character moral growth and stuff like that, you might be unpleasantly surprised to find the story of Galahad rather flat and boring. And this is actually okay because that was my first impression too. But might I suggest a deeper reading of the story, one that would in fact teach and inspire us about... How to Approach the Sacraments Worthily Note the fact that the Grail is not presented in the story as some treasure to be found that instantly would reward its finder. This makes the Grail unlike something like, say, the Philosopher's Stone, that promises to turn its discoverer into a wealthy person because of its ability to transmute any material into gold. This would happen whether its finder was a tyrant or a saint. In a likewise way, the Grail is not like Aladdin's lamp where that, promises, that promises you know three wishes and mastery over the genie to anyone who finds it. Rather, it is more true to say that the Holy Grail chooses its finder and at least demands of its finder some level of virtue in order to be found. Look at the idea of the seat of peril, first of all. Not anyone could sit in the coveted seat in Arthur's round table, but only the one who was worthy to try and take the honoured seat by force would prove lethal to its sitter. Then again, look at the example of Lancelot, who was otherwise a good and noble knight, but nevertheless was unable to achieve the grail. He was blinded for 24 days for his impurity with Guinevere, and before the glory of God was driven to his knees in an act of repentance. For even his quest for the grail wasn't for pure intentions, but merely to win the heart of Guinevere even more. Conversely, We are told both by Thomas Mallory and other tellings of the story that it is precisely Galahad's purity that enabled him to behold the Grail. Now, it's important to note that purity here doesn't simply just mean sexual purity. Galahad certainly possesses that, as symbolised by his being raised by religious sisters. But purity here also implies an undivided heart. One purely focused upon God and the things of God. While many of us struggle to be undivided over anything, and often just consider God as one of the many things we juggle in our lives, for the pure of heart they shall see God, echoing the very words of Jesus' Beatitudes. Okay, so what does all this mean for you and I today? Well, this legend challenges us with an important question about how we approach Jesus in the sacraments. Do we approach, for example, the sacraments of Eucharist and Reconciliation like a magic pill, a, a trinket, a vending machine that simply gives grace to anyone who is lucky enough to receive it. No, we shouldn't have this attitude and Catholic teaching maintains this position firmly. And this is not because God is partial in his love or you know pedantic about perfection, but because the effectiveness of the sacrament is always proportional to the response of the recipient even while God still gives everything he can from his side. The grace of every sacrament is always fully given, but the moral state of the recipient can in fact hinder the ability for that very grace to be received. A simple image to illustrate this theology could be like this. Every mass, God's love is poured out upon us like a waterfall, and this waterfall of love never ceases being poured out upon us. In this sense, you could say that the Eucharist is always effective, always fully given. However, even a Niagara Falls of God's love will be limited from our end if we do not have a bucket ready, or have turned the bucket upside down, or have a tiny thimble rather than a big bucket, or importantly, we have sand and massive rocks inside our bucket that prevent the water of God from entering. See, Catholic theology has always maintained that sacramental grace always involves two people, God and us. What the Church calls ex opere operanto, the work God does, and the ex opera operantis, the work that we do. The legend of Galahad, born out of Cistercian monastic spirituality, reminds its listeners not to treat the sacraments as a mere trinket or a vending machine. Rather, it encourages us to examine our own hearts, to strive to be pure of heart, and thus to be able to receive the sacraments worthily. And I do believe that during COVID lockdown, us being deprived of the physical sacrament of the Eucharist can definitely help us reflect. To ask ourselves... How much do I usually prepare my own heart? How thoroughly do I usually examine my own conscience before I come and receive our Lord? If you're enjoying this episode of the Myth Pilgrim, do consider sharing it with your friends so that we can together encounter God veiled in our favorite tales. I'm always open to your feedback and ideas too, So always feel free to contact me on the Myth Pilgrim Facebook page or through the website at themythpilgrim.com. The other significant detail to highlight about Galahad's story is the idea of the Grail being an end in itself. You will recall that when Galahad beholds the Holy Grail, he demands nothing more of it. He wasn't looking for status, for power, for wealth and pleasure or anything else. For him, merely beholding the grail was enough, and he felt as if his life purpose was achieved, and nothing more was necessary, and so he asked to be taken to heaven. Hmm. What do you make of this detail when you first heard it? Well again, it reflects back upon you and I today. The goal of the spiritual life, as you'd probably agree, is union with God. When we begin our journey, it is very normal to pursue a relationship with God for the benefits he gives us, you know, feelings of consolation, peace, security, providence, uh, direction, and all these things. Now, I'm not at all saying for a moment that these things are bad or wrong or sinful or even ungodly. Indeed, these are all gifts that God generously gives to those he loves. But compare these gifts to something like an engagement ring of a man who proposes to his beloved. The ring, as precious and beautiful as it is is meant to bring the beloved into deeper union with him, marital union, and hence the ring is not an end in itself. Likewise all the gifts that God gives us, peace, security, direction and so on, are means by which we grow in union with him. They are never, by definition, an end in themselves. For to seek God purely for the consolations he gives us would in time become a sort of idolatry where the gift given becomes the thing we pursue rather than the giver behind it. In our legend today, we see Galahad seek the Holy Grail as the final end in itself. He doesn't need anything else from it. For within the story, the Holy Grail is pretty much the equivalent of the presence of God. And the quest for the Holy Grail is very much a quest for the union with God. Through Galahad's story, we are led once again to reflect upon where our hearts lie regarding our relationship with God. How much do we truly believe that He is the one thing necessary, that to which every human desire finally rests? The Grail is as much a state of being as a physical object. And I believe that the story of the Grail has remained with us for so many centuries precisely because this is a story we need to hear again and again for the union with God is a lifelong journey, and one that truly takes on the form of a quest. But the radicalness of Christianity lies precisely in the fact that whatever effort we put into the quest, God Himself quests after us with infinitely more passion. Indeed, He has quite literally moved heaven and earth so that He can be found. As we arrive at the end of this episode, I want to encourage us, myself included, to examine our attitude and how we prepare for Mass, the sacrament of the Eucharist. Where might we have fallen into a sort of habitual, empty, ritual, vending machine attitude towards the sacrament, rather than taking the necessary time to reflect, to repent, to examine ourselves honestly before God? How open am I to conversion, every Mass? Now, how such a reflection looks like uh, will be different for every person. It could be something like doing a thorough examination of conscience before Mass, or even confession beforehand, Uh, pre-reading the readings before Mass, uh, and just deepening in your understanding of the liturgical symbols. But as I mentioned before, I do believe that the spiritual communion many of us have had to take during COVID lockdown has provided us a rare opportunity to reflect upon where our hearts are Regarding the sacrament. Is a real Mass purely about getting the physical wafer of the Eucharist? Or is there also something to be said about how ready we are to receive the gift? Good and timely questions, and one that us Catholics should revisit for the rest of our lives. But until a fortnight at least, (laughs) I will say bye for now. Journey forth, take care, and God bless.